to you by our friends of the British Council. Hey everybody, Matt McCarthy for Rugby Wrap-Up here at the Fantasy Sports Network Studio 34 in New York City. And we have a dandy for you today. But folks, we get out of the studio every now and then. We're just not locked in the ivory tower and we like to have a pint. So we go down to the Pig and Whistle on West 36th Street, our favorite rugby pub on the planet. And this time, we got to meet Greg McWilliams, who is arguably the Irish George Clooney, coach of Yale, currently uh, on the staff of Gary Gold at USA Rugby as his attack and backs coach. And one of his buddies joined us, named Robbie Deans, just one of the biggest coaching names in global rugby. Check it out. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very much. For the folks at home that don't know you guys, that have been living under a rock, the Irish George Clooney over here is Greg McWilliams, who coaches at Yale and is the attacks and uh, backs coach for Team USA. That's correct, yeah. That's under correct. the current South African coach, uh, Gary Gold. That's right, yeah, absolutely. And this man, ladies and gentlemen, Coach Robbie Deans, 1997 through 2000, Canterbury, you guys won right out of the gate in your first year of coaching the NPC. You took over the head coaching job of the Crusaders. So in year one, the Crusaders came stone cold last in 96, first year of professional rugby. Then started coaching Canterbury, won the NPC, started managing the Crusaders at the same time. We were sixth in, in the first year. Then 98 to 2000, we did three in a row, three titles. Wow. In 2000, I, I was the coach and then continued to coach from there. So 2008, <laughs> you stopped coaching with the Crusaders and you took a job with a little entity, a little outfit called the Australia Wallabies as a Kiwi. So, pretty radical step, but I'd done, well, you can do the math, maybe 12, 13 years of, of Super Rugby. We'd won seven titles at that point. I was just ready, ready for a new challenge. Applied for the All Blacks position, was unsuccessful. And it's fascinating, once you start looking, you create a bit of a niche. And yeah. I, I knew I was looking for a, a fresh challenge and, and what better challenge than to play your arch rivals just over the ditch. But it was a great experience. Yeah. Know, great experience for not only me, but my family. And um, Did you have to wear a nose and glasses when you went back to New Zealand? No, they, I had a massive amount of support from home. It was, it was fascinating, actually. Um, it blew me away. Yeah. It was an incredibly humbling experience to take on you know, what I thought would be, would be the source of a lot of yeah. aggravation. I mean, it was no win in many ways. If we did well, it wouldn't be well received in New Zealand. If, if, if we did poorly, it wouldn't be well received in, in Australia. And in many ways, that, that's the way it ended up. We actually did well. We, were, we became second in the world for three years. But inevitably, it wasn't good enough. And right. being a Kiwi, I was a constant reminder of the fact that the Kiwis were number one. Oof. So great, great time, great experience. You know, broaden me, broaden my family. No regrets. Uh, and from there, just to wrap it up, moved on to Panasonic Wild Knights in Japan. When is your contract up with the Panasonic <laughs> Wild Knights so we can Mate, get you over here with the Major the League Rugby squad? Could be at any time. <laughs> yes. <that's laughs> Look, who knows? We're enjoying it. But I get to coach and get to meet people in the game, yeah. and that's what rugby yeah. is. It just opens doors, uh, and you know, lucky enough to do a bit with the Yale program. And that was an unexpected pleasure for happen. you. It, it actually was quite funny. We had a at the time we had yeah. who is now senior Charlie Hill yeah. as a freshman student, and you Sophie, uh, Robbie's daughter at Yale, and he comes to me after training. He says, "Hey, there's a a guy who wants to come and watch." 
Correct. a few training sessions. Do you mind that? And I said, oh, I'll give him, send him my email and he can get in touch. And next thing I got an email from Robbie Deans from the Panasonic Wild Nights. And I went back to Charlie. Were like, you waiting Charlie. for the pie in the face? I was like, Charlie, do you know who this was? So now Robbie's been here now for, four, this is fourth year. Comes for a few weeks with Penny, his wife. And uh, I suppose you immerse in the whole environment. You know, we have our, our alumni weekend most years around this time. So we played golf on the Friday uh, with good numbers at the golf. And we had our alumni day on Saturday. And, and then Robbie coaches the guys with me. And then for the rest of the time, we generally play a bit of squash and we do a lot of planning and he's helped me a lot in terms of uh, my mindset towards my role at USA and my role at Yale and obviously I'm very grateful to Robbie and uh, we stay in touch then throughout the year and we have a good time, it's good. It's two ways, I mean you know, every experience you get you grow and you know, to witness what Greg's done here with the Yale program is, is amazing. Yeah. Because uh, you're dealing with kids who don't have a lot of training age, they learn play, well, they're, playing Well, they're smart, age, so. so they're not overly athletic exactly. to begin with. That's <laughs> yeah. my excuse anyway. The one thing that's consistent with rugby is people's love of the game. Mm. And I think people understand that with rugby, it, its point of difference is you can go anywhere in the world and you'll find like-minded people and doors open. And that's what makes the game. You've, you're, you've experienced a little bit of, <laughs> of rugby in the United States with Greg, what is your impression of rugby in the United States right now? I've played against the USA in the 2011 World Cup and they were the best set-piece team, if not the best, the second best statistically in that World Cup. That's a pretty impressive stat yeah. for, for a, a team that doesn't have the history yeah. of, of some of the more established nations. That's an interesting perspective. And then you look at what, what's happening not only in women's rugby but in, in the men's sevens program. Yeah. And you have a cocktail here that could just go boom. And I think the rest of the world knows that. And, Is there a and fear of that? Look, no, not at all. No, that's what you want. That's what, that's what you want for the game. But, uh, but it, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of setups, including the NZRU, are having some difficulty maintaining and retaining their players. You've got French money being thrown around. You've got premiership money being thrown around. If the U.S. starts throwing the money around, because we are truly a capitalistic society when it comes to sports, right? Mm -hmm. So the USA Rugby is not going to control what happens in the professional setup like the NZRU kind of controls it. One of my great fears when the game went professional was that it would change the nature of the game. That it would change the psyche of the playing group and that those that would achieve would be those that were essentially the best resourced. But if you go back and look at the history of professional rugby, it's actually quite the opposite. It's those that can create the best team environment and it's still the, what I call the amateur ethos still prevails. If, if a player is thinking about his next check, he will not Good point. persist. He'll opt out for next, and wait for next right. week. It will not be the point of difference. The point of difference has been those that create a community that's functional, and, and all the same reasons that we played. That, that was my biggest takeaway from working with the Barbarians. You have a, a lot of players who play in the professional game, come from all over the world, they get together. Of course, it's a bit of fun at the start of the week. They need to get to know each other. <laughs> and the middle of the week. But then once the second middle of the week or the second half of the week starts, I mean, you had a group of players that came together you know, in that old amateur ethos. They're there for the right reasons, they're there for the love of the game, they're there going to schools and teaching rugby and just the whole vibe I was really impressed with and it's something that I suppose uh, you always want to promote with the game and keep that alive, sure. is that amateur it's, ethos. Well, you've seen the transition go from complete amateur to professional. You've been a part of it 
the entire process. Your playing career, I think 146 caps, mm. something like 1,641 <laughs> points for Canterbury, right? But you were also managing a farm. We were talking about Correct. that off yeah. camera. And you trained Tuesdays and Thursdays and Sundays after the matches. Yeah, they were And then the have a day job. Yeah. Right? I was lucky enough to do all of that with my brother, who actually had a season or two. Of Bruce? Bruce, yeah. yeah. Played at San Luis Obispo uh, and loved his time here. Um, a great time of life. Yeah. You know, we had to travel an hour and a half for training each way. And we trained in the evening after work. Yeah. Uh, but I tell you, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, it was like it wasn't like I, I had uh, Pierre Arnaud of, uh, okay. of French rugby, and he had played with Claremont before the advent of professional rugby. Okay. But you know, I, he had it different because I said, "Did you have a day job?" Wink, wink. And yeah. he clearly <laughs> had a job where he was getting. He didn't really have yeah. to show up for it. That was the well, difference were, between France and New Zealand. Long right. before for professionalism, long before the game went <laughs> professional. I was lucky enough to have a season in France, actually, and the president met me at the airport and he, with, wow. a, with a contract. He said, I'd like you to sign here. I said, I'm not signing anything. That'll turn me into a professional. He said, I'm just here for an experience. Basket of francs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they used to use brown paper bags in those days. Is there anything that, looking back, if you could roll back the clock, is there anything that you would do differently when you were with the All Blacks as assistant with Mitch? Uh, I think it's easy to reflect. But you make your decisions in real time. You give it due consideration, armed with all the background and all the, the information you have available to you, all the understanding you have of, of the environment and the people and the challenge that's coming the other way. And then you keep going. Yeah. You, you can't live life looking over your looking shoulder. Back. Let's cut to present day. You're with the Panasonic Wild Knights. What are some of the challenges with Japanese? Right? Yeah. Uh, it's been a great experience, actually, and, and it's one that I started a lot earlier, uh, 2005, I think, my first in encounter with, with these guys. And it broadened me as a coach, having to communicate without having the language. Just made you more succinct, made you think about, well, what message do you want them to retain? Because they can only retain so much. And, and with the, the translation that's required, um, we got a lot better because we've created our own rugby language. Uh, but you've just got to be efficient. I want to go to you real fast because we're running out of time. Um, but you've now, because you're meeting him, and this is the way the rugby world works, right? You were on the Barbarians tour. Yeah. You also coached Irish national women, right? Right, yeah. Now you're with Team USA. Mm. That's a lot of experience to bring to the Eagles. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like, like Robbie says, I mean, uh, rugby's uh, coaching, you know, it's a very small community and you know Scott Robinson who's the Crusaders uh, head coach he's coming over to Yale now uh, for preseason in August through Robbie and just through those connections and I think as a coach your your role or, or certainly for me is to try and learn as much as I can of anybody who's willing to talk uh, I'm certainly willing to listen you try and take that experience and bring it with you and you know Gary who's leading the US national side is just does a great job at making sure that all the people who are working for him have a role and we have to add value and we have to be prepared and we have to be organized and we have to do all we can to make USA better. I mean, I've been blessed to work with a lot of different coaches, including Robbie and people like Joe Smith, who I've looked up to. And Gary comes in and he's, I must say himself and Dave Hodges work great together and uh, looking forward to getting back out after the June test now. All right, so we got two final questions for you. And these are from my, uh, my uh, fellow pundits. Uh, number one, rugby rain man, Junois Blaybert. He wants to know, 
if you think the success of sevens is hurting tier two 15s? No, it's exposing them to a competitive environment, stadiums, travel, all the things that will be relevant with the, with the other program, 15s. Right. Um, it's exposing them to techniques. It really isolates techniques. Your ability to tackle, your ability to clean out, ability to combine. And you're accountable. Catch, pass, you know, on a, on a sevens field. Yeah, right? totally accountable. You're isolated. You can't you miss hide. a tackle. Nobody's yeah. going to know that it was you or the fullback oh, yeah. or the wing. Yeah. But most importantly, it's exposure to ambition. And you look at what that program's doing. You know, they've won two world titles. And, it's, and you've got to start somewhere. And at some point, the light will go on. And I'll say, we can do this. I'd also add about like it's it's so important in tier two countries when sevens is developing as it is, is that governance to make sure that there's a, a link with fifteens, sevens, youth rugby, all those should be merged together. Like the worst you can have in any tier two country is all your players going off and playing sevens and then all of a sudden there's nobody playing fifteens and likewise everyone playing fifteens and not playing sevens. So I think it's just important to have good governance that the organization is in a position to support support both and we're seeing that with USA at the moment, which is encouraging. One could argue that it really hurt Canada, because Canada was on the front foot in a way. They were they were doing what they, it seemed like they were going to skyrocket beyond us. And we have ABC here, anybody but Canada. That's our expression, mm -hmm. right? And then they had the players in sevens and fifteens, and it kind of the attrition, I guess, because of injury or whatever. It kind of hurt the program overall. Yeah. So you just need governance and then leadership of the program to make sure that you're catering for your needs and that the choices you make don't compromise your future. Martin Pengilly, so he's of The Guardian US and he asks if Australia's current struggles are due to a lack of forward power, the ARU's belief, and consequent lack of investment of, of producing proper successors to Kearns and Earls, and that only backline tries count in selling, selling, uh -huh. selling in a saturated market. There's a lot in there. Um, he's like and that. it's a good question. Yeah. The, the irony is, the Wallaby's success through the 90s has been a contributing factor to their struggles since because they, they lived in a bubble to a large extent. The game evolved, professionalism evolved not only in rugby but in other codes. So AFL is, is the biggest sport in Australia. Football right. is the A-League is now massive right. and league was professional prior to rugby and it's, it's a village game. So it's, a, it's one of the most competitive sporting environments. So there's a lot of competition for the talent. And rugby got distracted by, that, by those elements of competition. They turned to some league players, changed the culture. They overpaid their players. They, they created their, a lot of their own problems. Um, there's enough resource there for the Wallabies to do really well. But what they lack now, with professionalism, there's, there's now five Franchises, the force have just been cut, but they'll probably they still exist. That distribution of a young playing group created problems, but most importantly, it re the the management of the game reflects their their federal state system, where they all function as silos. Yeah. When you just had New South Wales and Queensland, no problem, easy. They competed hard, they lifted the level as a result of that, and then they came together as one. Now that you've got five and they all function as solos, they all think they know best and there's no sharing of ideas and management of the playing group. They take my phone, for example, when I went through the players' numbers in my phone, most of them had represented three different franchises. Very Bobby, if, if you look at countries 
like Ireland at the moment, like New Zealand, like Correct. England, they have points of difference. Like, do you think it's a case that the identity for Australia and their style and their, their whole alignment is off? Alignment's the word. New Zealand, the parent body, control 80% of the playing group. That's certainly the, the, the players that they want to control. That they manage their contracts, they're contracted directly, they manage their playing load, they oversee everything. Ireland, likewise. The provincial. They're the two so, most yeah. aligned countries. England uh, have a massive playing resource and have made some inroads into, into the manager of that group, but they're still not maximising what they have. Alignment is, is, is the word and the key point of difference. So here's, here's To maximise what you have. Here's a question. Are there too many international test matches? Are there too many professional matches? And can that be sustained? Because you have stadiums in some of the pro setups that are empty. And we just had some pretty good crowds out of the gate. You know, they're modest crowds for Major League Rugby, but it just started, right? So does the NZRU need to limit or uh, help? They need to manage the playing group. I, don't, I personally don't believe the number of fixtures is an issue, other than if the same players are playing in all of them. Because the English so, and the French players are getting are playing. Correct. They play times. eleven months. They're, right. they're getting hammered, and hence. That's why, you know, you had New Zealand and Ireland basically doing yeah. well because they're managing their players. Yeah. Well, you're talking about sorry, Rob. You're talking about international rugby, and you're talking about Australia, for example, who've lost their identity. If you look at Super Rugby at the moment, I mean, we talked about this stat the other day. I think it's twenty-four games in a row. I could be wrong that Australian teams have been beaten by New Zealand sides. 34. 34. So 34 games in a row, New Zealand have beaten Australian franchise in Super Rugby. And here we are trying to see why aren't Australia winning at international level. It's very hard if their players are scattered, not used to winning, poor cultures, poor training ethics. I mean, that's the same throughout the club side that dictates here, national team play. And that's, I think that's a big contributing factor to that as well. One critical element for, for the global game is to manage the seasons. And they're talking about doing it, they've been talking about it since 2001, but it looks like they may be close to taking that step. And that will allow you to manage the players and manage, manage the formats. And critically for the Southern Hemisphere teams, hopefully it'll give them access because their challenge is commercialising. New Zealand's done pretty well courtesy of Adidas and AIG, but they need to be able to get the eyeballs from up north. Yeah down there. Logging in. Yeah. Uh, and the internet will offer that. So some interaction format wise, but m manage the, your resource effectively. That's the key. And the formats for the, the different formats aren't a problem. One of the, the biggest problems in, in Australia is that basically it's an international game, but you're competing in a, in a local market. So every weekend there's eight league teams winning down the road. And, and for some period, you go nine weeks, it wouldn't be a Waratahs game playing. See, the thing is, you know, everybody keeps saying, oh, they're comparing it to professional soccer here 25, 30 years ago. It's completely different because we have the internet. You don't have to compete for a network slot, which is what soccer had to compete with. We can stream matches and you can have 5,000 people in a small venue and it's crowded and people have a good time and people yeah. watching it say, wow, that was pretty cool. Well, right? that, that's the UK. They, they fill their yeah. stadiums, yeah. smaller venues, Great atmosphere, so people enjoy the experience, they want to come back. 
That's the challenge we're going to have here because we have enormous stadiums. Mm -hmm. We don't have many small yeah. stadiums. A lot but, of start. And Gillick Park was electric for just yeah. the exhibition match. But I mean, being 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 a part of the national coaching setup and to already have three games coded yeah. and to be able to analyze every player, yeah. I mean, that's just a resource already that's going to be invaluable to, to the staff. It's in, invaluable. Sean Two Sean matches. Pittman, I think, is in San Diego this week. The Fords coach, I'm in Houston. You know, we're getting around, we're, we're, we're linking up, and we're looking for new talent, and we're looking to monitor the players that are there. It's terrific. And as Robbie says, the key ingredient is trying to get, like, you know, create a product that's going to be exciting to try and compete in that market, to drag people away from other sports that mightn't be as exciting. And hopefully rugby is going to be that sport, and that's what Australia struggle with, and hopefully America can break that market. Uh, but it's going, to be, it's going to be a long process. Well, that leads us to our final question, because we're talking about making rugby exciting and putting fannies in the seats. And I understand you're a bit of an innovator. And what's this uh, talk about, this, this blasphemy about flipping the pitch? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the world is flat. Don't tell As a coach, you've got to find new ways of doing the same thing. <laughs> and uh, you're constantly you know, seeking ideas to stimulate the playing group. So explain, foremost, explain this. They deserve that. Yeah. Mate, I'm, I haven't disclosed this anywhere <laughs> I, I other than a dark corner. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> disclose it. My ears don't disclose it. I said it to him in conversation. Look, look yeah. save, save the spot for another point. All right, so we got a cliffhanger we're going to leave you with, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> On that note, the innovator, Coach Robbie Deans, and the Irish George Clooney, that is Greg McWilliams, <laughs> here at the Pick and Whistle. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks, much appreciate guys. it, Matt. Thank you. All right, All right now I want to thank Greg McWilliams, and Coach Deans for coming on. And thanks to Friends of the British Council in this Community Corner segment. I'm Matt McCarthy for Rugby Wrap-Up, signing off.